As a kid, I grew up in Birmingham. I lived in uh, Forestdale, which is southwest, a suburb of uh, southwest of Birmingham, just a few miles of the city. I lived on, on Varden Hill Drive, which was named after my family. That's where my dad grew up, same house he grew up in. Uh, I lived there until I was about 11 years old, and we made the big move to Adamsville, which is about two miles down the road. Uh, so uh, I lived my whole life there until I was 25, uh, but I grew up in the house, as I said, my dad did, and in the backyard, it was, I believe it was a pear tree. I meant to ask him, but I, all I know is that that tree produced good switches. Uh, anybody here know what a switch is, all right? Anybody that's over the age of, of 30, I think, and, you know, you're under the age of 30, maybe not, I don't know. But uh, that tree produced good switches. And if you know, if you've ever experienced um, a switch, being punished with a switch, you know what I'm talking about. It's not, not a pleasant thing. And, and uh, ever, ever so often, my sister and I would get that. I'm not going to say which one of us got it more, um, but we did. And that tree uh, in the backyard just, I mean, produced perfect switches. So one day... My sister and I, we were out in the backyard playing, and mom and dad were doing something else. They were inside, they weren't around, and we got the bright idea that we were going to cut that tree down. (laughs) Yep, yep, it went about as well as you can imagine. Uh, I don't even know if we got into it. My dad, I think it was my dad, called us, and the only thing we ended up cutting that day was a switch to be used. But we thought, hey, they're not around. We can get away with this. It's going to be perfect. And boy, we were wrong. But that, we do that, don't we? When we think, especially when we're kids, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Uh, and we think, hey, if we're not being watched, we can get away with anything. We do that with God, too. We get it in our minds that just because maybe we don't see him physically, that we can hide. We can do things, and he won't know. We try to hide things from him, but it doesn't work because God knows all. He sees all. But what we see today... In our passage, as we continue our series through Moses' life, as the Israelites fell, they made the same mistake. They thought just because Moses wasn't around, just because God was up there on the mountain with him, that maybe God wouldn't notice what they were doing, and they made a huge mistake. Now, we've been in this series for a while now, and we're studying the life of Moses to discover spiritual principles, to experience God's spiritual principles so that we can live a spiritual life in Christ. We want to know God's will. We want to follow God's will. We want to know how to live in obedience to God, and we see through Moses' journey his ups and downs. He experienced a lot of highs. He experienced a lot of lows. He was challenged. He didn't always respond well to those challenges. Sometimes he did, but in spite of it all, God used him for his glory, and he was able to be a part of God's plan for his life and for his kingdom, a huge part of that. Now we come to uh, chapter 32 of Exodus. We're moving right along, getting close to the end of, of, of our series. But in this chapter 32, the setting here is Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai. He is speaking to God. We have the Ten Commandments. He's speaking to God, and he is giving Moses, God is giving Moses important instructions about how to build the tabernacle so that God can dwell amongst his people in the tabernacle. And uh, so Moses is receiving those instructions. He is in the midst of a literal 40-day mountaintop experience with God up there 40 days. And so while this is going on, though, you shift to the different scene at the base of the mountain, and it's quite a different setting. It's quite a different scene down there. Moses is having this mountaintop experience, and the people, Moses has been gone for 40 days, and they begin to worry. What's happened to Moses? They get concerned, as any of us might, 
Um, and they, you know, in the midst of uncertainty, maybe fear sets in, and you're tempted to do things that you normally wouldn't. You doubt God, you doubt His presence, you doubt His sovereignty in the midst of everything that's going on. Does any of that sound familiar? Have any of us experienced that, if we're honest, to some degree over the past several months? I, I, I have. I'll just be honest with you. There have been points along the way where I've had to get on my knees and say, God, I, what are you doing here? You know, what's going on? I don't really understand. And, and, but uh, the, the right response after that is to trust God and continue to move forward. The Israelites, unfortunately, decided they were going to take matters into their own hands. Moses is gone. They're scared. They don't know what to do. And they react poorly. They panic. And this is one of the saddest events in the Bible, really. When you think about all that they've gone through and how, how God has time and time again revealed himself. Uh, but Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells us that, yes, this is a sad event, but he tells us that we are able, we should take this event, learn from it, and use it so that we won't make the same mistake, right? So that we won't fail God, we won't get ahead of God, we won't try to replace God, and we won't allow fear and panic to cause us to do something that would separate us from God. Uh, we learn from their mistakes. And so the actions that the, all of the characters take in this story, the Israelites, God himself, Moses, we see from their actions there's some very important lessons that we can learn about doing God's will God's way. All right, so let's look at those lessons today. The first is this. Israel rebels in the absence of their leader. As I said, Moses is gone. They get scared. And instead of trusting God, they decide to rebel in the absence of their leader. Moses is not with them. So let's just begin in Exodus chapter 32. We'll read verses 1 through 6 together. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. They're scared. Then Aaron replied to them, Take off gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So they all took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Then he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to play. They had a party. They had a celebration. The people get tired of waiting on Moses, and they say, you know, we're not going to wait anymore. We're going to take matters into our own hands. Aaron built us uh, a God, built us an idol that will lead us into the promised land. And right there, now think about this. They've just received the Ten Commandments, right? Boy, I mean, they, 40 days hadn't passed, and they're breaking the first two right there. You shall have no other gods before me, and you, should, you, you can't have any graven images. Don't build any, uh, any idols, and that, they, they break the first two. They've built this idol. They have put it in a place that belongs to God. So they have another God, little g, before the one and only true God. And you think about this too, okay? 
Just because it wasn't said like it was until Jesus said it doesn't mean that it's not eternal because it represents the whole law. Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. That is a summary of the law. So not only are they not loving God, they also are not loving Moses, and so they're breaking the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. They are blowing it big time. They have forgotten all that God has done for them, and they are breaking the law that God had just shown them. Uh, they break the two greatest commands. Then they ask Aaron, they said, Bake a God for us who will go before us. And Aaron makes the golden calf. They said, this is your God. This is our God. They're saying, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Boy, a short memory. They're replacing the one and only true God. They've broken the first and second commandments. And Aaron sees that they are pleased. So what does he do? He builds an altar so that they can offer sacrifices to this golden calf. They're mixing the, 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 the laws of God, the rules of God, worship of God with worship of idols that they learned in Egypt. And so they begin to offer burnt offerings. They're doing for this calf what belongs. They're worshiping uh, the calf in, in ways that, that should only uh, be directed toward God. And these events show us, and here's how it ties in, okay? There are some important lessons we can learn here. These events, if we look at what happens here, what transpires, we can learn how we fall into sin and maybe prevent it the next time around. We learn valuable lessons. We fall into sin, first of all, and this is so applicable when we grow impatient with God. We fall into sin when we grow impatient with God. Has anybody experienced impatience this past week? In my lifetime, we've never had to wait that long and still, to some degree, waiting for an election to be resolved, right? I mean, I don't know that this ever happened that way, not to my knowledge in history. And it's easy to get impatient. Did anybody think we would still be wearing masks and social distancing in November. None of us did, right? I mean, let's be honest, yet we still are. Anybody grown impatient with that process? Anybody doubted, why, God, why don't you just take it? We've prayed, right? We've prayed, Lord, take this disease and, and get rid of it. We've prayed time and time again. I know I have. He hasn't done it yet. It's easy to grow impatient with God. The Israelites, 40 days, they begin to wonder what's happened to Moses. He's gone. Maybe he's, maybe he's dead. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a mountain lion got him. I don't know what they're thinking. They're thinking he's gone. They grow impatient, and they decide we aren't going to wait on God anymore. We're taking matters into our own hands. Impatience with God's timing, listen to this, is at the heart of many of our struggles with sin. We have desires given to us by God, and instead of waiting for those desires to be fulfilled in his perfect way, in his perfect timing, we decide we want it right now. We want it the way we want it, and we want it right now. And that's all over our culture, right? You, need, you deserve it. Get it right now. Have it your way. Immediately, instant gratification. And we get ahead of God. Impatience is at the heart of many of our struggles with sin. And that's what happened with the, the nation of Israel. The problem is, God doesn't work that way. He's not on our schedule. He is above time. The clock doesn't mean anything to him. Our expectations may not match his kingdom plan. We need to get on his schedule. Our hearts are shaped through waiting 
delayed gratification, and yes, even disappointment. God uses those things to mold us and shape us and increase our dependence upon him. And so in the midst of all of this, I guarantee you, if you will run to the feet of Jesus and stay there, you will not be disappointed when all this is over with. Because guess what? This is going to pass and something else is going to come along. It may not be worldwide, but it's going to affect your life. And what you learn in the midst of this, if you depend on Jesus, if you, will, if you will stay at his feet and in his word and surrounded by godly people who will counsel you and encourage you when all of this is over, the next crisis you face, you will be able to look back on this and say, you know what? God took care of me then. He's going to take care of me now. He provided for my family then. He's going to provide now. It wasn't easy. It wasn't always, you know, uh, roses and whatever. But God provided. He took care, and we can face this next challenge. He uses these experiences to shape us. And many times, though, we get impatient and we try to do things our way. We also fall into sin when we do what's popular rather than, than what is right. Aaron definitely failed the Israelites by agreeing to make this idol. Now go back. Moses, God's calling Moses. Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But I can't talk. I don't talk good. And he says, all right, well, I'll make provision for you. You remember me telling you that whenever we don't accept God's best, there are always consequences. God's perfect plan was for Moses to go. Moses hesitated, so what did God do? He provided. He allowed for Aaron. And this comes back to bite him. Right now, in this moment, Moses is probably thinking, boy, I wish I would have never asked for that. When he finds out what's going on, and the Aaron's the one leading them, he asked for that. He could have done without that. Aaron makes a big mistake. He decides to go with the crowd. Hey, these people, they're going to, you know, they're, they're, either he's doing it because they, they, it's, they're, they're pushing him to do it, and he doesn't want to say no, or he's trying to take over for Moses because he thinks maybe he's gone. He's power hungry, or both. I mean, it could be a combination of both. Either way, he makes a huge mistake. And, and the sad thing is, is Aaron could have stepped aside. He could have prayed. He could have gotten counsel from the leadership. And he could have taught them the law they just learned, reminded them of what they were supposed to do. He could have done all of that. Instead, he bows down to the popular opinion, and he goes with the crowd. He cared more about the opinion of people than he does the opinion of God at the, in this moment. And, and he, he could have done all of those things, but he didn't. But we do that sometimes, don't we? We fail to stand up for biblical truth. When somebody says something we know is wrong, we don't want to be confrontational. We're on the phone with somebody, they begin to gossip, and instead of getting off the phone or telling them to stop, we listen to it and maybe even participate in it. We fall, we, we cow down to, to popular opinion. We don't want to stand up for dishonest practices at work because maybe we'll lose our, our job or, or, or we don't want to risk losing a friend and disagreeing with a spiritual principle or something that's cultural that we know the Bible speaks to. We compromise the gospel so that people won't be offended. And in doing so, we go with popular opinion instead of what God would have for us. We shy away from biblical truths that are not popular in our culture because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to be called names, intolerant, whatever. Um, we don't want to be called fanatics, extremists. Whenever we go for the popular way rather than the biblical way, we are sitting ducks for sin. 
We're just opening ourselves up. Another way we fall into sin is that we insist on worshiping the Lord our way and not his way. The way we want. The Israelites gathered and they asked Aaron to make an idol. They're saying, we know we need protection for the promised land. We know we need someone to lead us. And so we want you to make a guide for us. Moses is gone. Uh, this mysterious God that has led us out of Egypt, we, we don't know where he is. Although they do, they, they, they're saying, we don't know what's going on. And so will you make some, we know we need help. And that phrase, this Moses, boy, it just... I mean, it, it, you can just hear the tone there, right? Well, this Moses, boy, he's caused us all kinds of problems. We don't even know where he is. Well, yeah, they do. They know exactly where he is. He's on the mountain meeting with God. They've just grown impatient. They, they don't want to wait anymore. They're scared. The problem isn't that Moses is lost. The problem is that the people of Israel are impatient. They're unwilling to wait for God's plan to unfold. They, they don't want to wait anymore. They're tired of waiting. And this is how the pattern of sin normally starts. We get impatient with God's plan. We grow impatient. We get scared. We insist on our own. All right? And then we have desires, again, that can be met by God. But instead of waiting for God, we get ahead of God. And so we fail to experience God's best. We fail to experience God's best. We also fall into sin when we combine the worship of the Lord with the worship of other gods. What are they doing here? Remember, they, these people have been in Egypt. That's all they've ever known. They grew up with idol worship. Many, many gods. All the plagues dealt with the different gods of Egypt. There are many gods, and so they're used to this. This is what they, they're going back to what they know. And the one true God that they've experienced, that's new to them. And so, even though God took the nation of Israel out of Egypt, there's still a lot of Egypt in the nation of Israel. And so, the minute things get uncertain, the minute they get scared, they go back to what they know. And what you see here is them blending the worship of idols that they learned in Egypt with the worship of the one true God, the way that he demands. They're trying to mix those two things. And we all, you know, it's popular today to have a sort of a buffet religion. You know, we pick what we like, we leave what we don't like. Or a designer religion where we take, you know, people, you hear, I'm spiritual a lot, right? That, people in our culture are very spiritual, but what you see is a blending of whatever they like the most from different faiths or different religions and leaving out things that are uncomfortable or cause confrontation or might offend somebody else that wants to define their truth. And that's what's happening here is that they are blending different religions the way they want it, the way they like it, the way that makes them feel comfortable because because now they've got a nice little God that they can see and touch and smell and whatever they want to do. It's not mysterious. It's there. It's physical. And they feel comfortable with that. Instead of worshiping the one true God, the Israelites worshiped a God of their own making. They exchanged the God of the universe for something that ultimately he created. They're worshiping the created thing rather than the creator himself. They're exchanging God. And here's the problem. They are no longer taking their cue from God. They're no longer in a position to hear him and to follow him. They are ignoring the word of God. They, 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 this, the word that he's just given them, the, the God that they've just come to know and follow, they're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. But why a golden calf? You ever think about that? You know, scholars disagree on the significance there. It was a symbol in Egypt. Um, used by uh, Egyptians to represent gods. 
um, or to represent characteristics of God. So I think there's probably something there. But Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, tells us what's really at the heart of this issue. 38, verse 38 of Acts 7, He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received the living oracles to give to us. In verse 39, Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him away, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. In their hearts they're turning back. Bottom line, they're returning to Egyptian idolatry. The people were quick to turn to idolatry because idolatry was still in their hearts. It was still in their hearts. Their hearts did not belong completely to the Lord yet. They had not given themselves completely to God. They had no faith. They had completely forgotten all that God had done, or at least didn't care in that moment, and they turned to an idol. And R.C. Sproul gives us several ways the Israelites are doing their own thing. Number one, they sought to create what God was providing Moses on the mountain. They wanted to create it themselves, a place and a way to worship God. They took the initiative with worship rather than waiting on God to direct their worship. They set their own agenda. Number three, offerings were demanded rather than offered willingly. They demanded it. The elaborate preparations of the tabernacle were replaced by a rushed forming of a golden calf. You know, think about it. Moses is receiving instructions on how to build a tabernacle, ta- tabernacle where God will dwell and they will worship him and offer sacrifices. I think 40 days is probably a short, pretty short amount of time to receive those instructions. The God of the universe. But they, short, they shortcut that. Try to. Number five, instead of the Ark of the Covenant covered inside the Holy of Holies where God's glory would rest, you see a false god out in the open air that would bring his curse rather than his blessing. Another way they went wrong, doing their own thing. Six, this rule says the invisible God was replaced by a visible image. The personal God became an impersonal object that could not speak, see, or act. And finally, they hoped that the calf would bring them a blessing, but instead forfeited the blessing of God by their actions. They just substituted something that was unsatisfying. It's second best, not even second best. Um, It was a poor substitution. I read an article a few years back. It was about a book that was written. A guy that was in prison, uh, Gustavo Alvarez was in prison for weapons charge and several other things. He was there for about 10 years, uh, something like that. And he found out in prison, how many of you have ever had ramen noodles? If you were ever poor and didn't have enough for food, you buy ramen noodles. That's what they're known for. They're cheap, right? Well, in prison, they're like money, evidently. Uh, You can trade ramen noodles for other things. And what this guy, Alvarez, and some other guys, they figured out how to take ramen noodles and make some pretty crazy dishes out of them. They got really creative. And when he got out of prison, he got with a childhood friend of his, and he wrote a book. And the book is called, it's a book of recipes called Prison Ramen, Recipes and Stories from Behind Bars. Some creative recipes, dirty ramen. It includes, it's made with Vienna sausages, green beans, carrots, and other things. They even figured out how to make ramen pot roast. I mean, all kinds of of recipes there. And I'm sure for prison food, it was pretty good. But I bet you they would admit that it's not as good as real pot roast. It's not as good as the real thing. If they claim that, I'm going to have to taste it because I don't believe that. I like some pot roast now. I mean, it's a cheap substitute, right? It's best that's what they had. 
And, and, you know, he's making some money off of it, but it's a cheap substitute. It's not really as fulfilling as the real thing, and that's what the nation of Israel did. The golden calf, it was a cheap substitute, and that's what we do when we put anything in our lives in a place that belongs to God. Anything, and it could be a good thing, but if we put it in a place of attention and affection, even worship in our lives, and it takes God's place, that's just a cheap substitute. It's never as good as the real thing. It's not as good as the one true God. We pick and choose what we believe from the Bible. People like to take what they want from one religion or another. They form their own religion. And, and you know, I like, I like a quote from a song by Rich Mullins, a song called Creed. He said, I believe what I believe, and it is what makes me who I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not, hear this, not the invention of man. They're trying to invent their own faith. Our heart's desire should be always to obey the word of God, not inventing our own ideas about God, allowing him to form our opinions and our beliefs and our desires. The Israelites rebel, and then Moses pleads an advocation for them. He pleads an advocation for the people of Israel. He's begging for them. Um, And we see this in the true affection that he has. God's ready to wipe the Israelites out. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. A stiff-neck, that's describing a farm animal, a donkey or something like that, that's stubborn and won't get in the yoke of its owner. It's it's stubborn. It won't learn. It it uh, It won't change its ways. It won't submit. Right, And so he's saying that these people, they just won't learn. God's saying they're stubborn. They will not get in my yoke. They won't learn from me. So the lesson here is don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn. Don't allow your opinions to take God's opinions. Humble yourself. Be willing to admit when you've done something wrong. Be, be willing to humble yourself before God and before other people. Admit that maybe he knows better than you. That's what these Israelites were unwilling to do. They were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. And now, because of what they had done, they faced the wrath of God, which is a scary thing. They face and deserve God's wrath. We all deserve God's wrath for our sins. They were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. God had given them every chance to obey. They had blown it. They had, they had shown that they didn't truly, had not truly given their hearts to God. And so now, God is ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. God tells Moses he's going to destroy them and, and offers to make Moses a great nation. Here's what he's telling Moses. Here's, Moses, I'll tell you what. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to wipe them out, and we'll start over with you. You can be the new Abraham. That's what he's telling Moses. Now, is that really what he wants to do? Now, he's testing Moses here. What's Moses' job? His job is to intercede for those people. God has placed Moses between him and the people. God communicates to them and then communicates to God. He's their intercessor. He has referred to them as Moses' people. They're really God's people, but God has referred to them as Moses' people. He's not trying to pass the buck. He's trying to get Moses to take ownership of them. They are his people. He's leading them. He is their leader, and he's testing Moses. Will Moses really show love and affection and take ownership of these people? Will he beg for them? You know, he's testing his pride. He's testing his dedication to the people he's leading. Some look at this passage falsely and say that Moses is changing God's mind. That's not happening here. Matter of fact, there are signs from the beginning that God doesn't plan to wipe them out. He's testing Moses. He is seeing if Moses is really willing to be their intercessor. 
And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, 29, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. So either Scripture contradicts itself, or this isn't really God changing his mind. It's God putting Moses through a test and a growing process here. You know, God, the, the belief that God would change his mind, is, is, it leads to what's called open theism. And this is the doctrine that states that God really doesn't know what's going to happen and that he's, he's basically working on the fly as he goes along. I don't know about you, but that's not really a God worth trusting. And that's not the God that's defined in Scripture. So that can't be what's happening here. It was never God's purpose to destroy the, all of the Israelites. Some people are going to be destroyed. Some people are going to suffer. His purpose all along was to save them. How do we know this? Well, God commands Moses to go down. We see, why would he tell Moses to go down if he's going to wipe everybody out? So that's not really his plan from the beginning. Again, this is about Moses. He, his plan is to save them through a mediator. He's developing Moses as a mediator here. He was sending Moses to pray for their forgiveness. Remember, God, again, and if you look in verse 7, God describes them as Moses' people. He's not shifting responsibility. He is trying to help Moses identify with them. He is their representative before God. Look at verse 10. We see the biggest evidence of this in verse 10. He says, now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Under what circumstances, according to that verse, would God not destroy the nation of Israel? Look at the first part of verse 10. God says, leave me alone so I can destroy them. God's power is not dependent upon Moses. The only way he would destroy the nation of Israel is if, if, if Moses ceased to mediate for them. That's what God is saying here. It's not dependent upon Moses. He's not subjecting himself to Moses. He's testing him. He's, he's finding out. He knows, but Moses is now discovering, how much do I really love these people? <laughs> how much am I really willing to lead these people, to pray for these people, to intercede for these people, to be a representative, to put up with their stubbornness? So Moses is not changing God's mind here. He's fulfilling what God had planned all along. Moses, Moses wasn't changing God's plans. He's actually carrying them out by being that intercessor for them. Look at verse 11. But Moses interceded with the Lord, his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your great anger and relent concerning his disaster plan for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, you swore to them by your very self and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all that this land, all this land that I've promised. And they will inherit it forever. You know, you wouldn't blame Moses if he just said, all right, God, take care of them. I'm tired of them too. Have at it. Do your worst. And hey, it's pretty cool to be known as the next Abraham, right? That'd be pretty tempting. You wouldn't blame Moses if he just said, okay. But Moses does something pretty incredible. He pleads with God. He prays on behalf of Israel. He begs for mercy. And there are four appeals here very quickly that we can identify with. Number one, he appeals to God's possession. They were his children. Saying, God, these are your children. Remember, he's not reminding, God knows. But he, he's just, he's, he's stating the fact these are your people. These are your possession. You know, we can say the same thing. If you are a child of God, you are his possession. 
his valuable, prized possession, and he loves you. He also appeals to God's salvation of Israel. He's saying, God, you went to some pretty great lengths to save these people. You did a whole lot. You've invested a lot in them. Again, God knows this. This is Moses interceding. This is about him fulfilling God's plan, becoming what God wants him to be. This is part of his journey of faith. God, think about all you did, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. Why would you do all that if you're just going to plan to destroy them? Why not just leave them in Egypt? He's, he's gone to great lengths to save them. And guess what? He's gone to great lengths to save you and me too. He sent his son who died on the cross, gave his life, willingly took on the wrath of God, all of our sin. And in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, changing of governments, plagues, whatever you want to call it, pandemics, why would God save you just to destroy you? Even if you leave this earth, your, your eternity is set. God will never abandon you. If you are his, you are his forever. And he's gone to great lengths to make sure that that is the case. If you will trust him, you are his. Look at Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this. He who started a good work, he who began a good work, will be faithful to complete that work, to bring it, to carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Then Moses appeals to God's reputation. He's saying, hey, God, the Egyptians are going to say, all he did was he saved them just to wipe them out. Moses is concerned with the glory of God, and he should be because God is very concerned with his glory, and he deserves glory. We have the same motivation. He's praying, God, don't destroy them because this is about your, your honor, your glory, your name. And by saving them, you receive glory for that. We do the same thing when we pray for the salvation of people who are lost. When we pray for folks overseas who are sharing the gospel and those people that they are leading to Christ, when we witness, when we pray, God, save my family member, save my friend, we're doing it. Yes, we're concerned about them, but ultimately our motivation is that it glorifies the name of God and exalts his name as God and Savior. We are concerned, we should be concerned with the glory of God and God's reputation. We bring glory to God by intervening on behalf of those who are lost. And then Moses appeals to God's promises. Remember your promises to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Jacob. God was bound by the promise. He cannot break his promise. And again, Moses isn't reminding God. He's just stating, God, this is who you are. You can't destroy them. You've already promised that you would make a great nation through Abraham. You're not going to go back on that. This isn't even an option. No, I'm not willing to accept that offer because it's not a real offer. Not that God is lying. Again, he's testing Moses. And Moses is passing with flying colors, by the way. And you and I, we are saved by grace, and we are secure in the promises of God because God cannot break his promises. So what is all this? Well, this is Moses pleading for God's mercy, his grace, his unmerited favor. He's interceding for his people. He's pleading for grace, which, by the way, is all any of us can do. We deserve to be wiped out. We deserve to be punished eternally, but by the death of cross of Christ on the cross, his resurrection, we can now beg for mercy and grace and receive it. We get to receive the grace of God, and God in his grace answers Moses' prayer in verse 14. The Lord relented concerning 
the disaster he said he would bring on his people. And then after that, after pleading, Moses reacts with anger towards Israel. He comes down the mountain. He smashes the Ten Commandments. It's a, he, he, at the foot of the mountain, this is a symbol of the covenant being broken, not by God, but by Israel. He then destroys the golden calf. He burns it. He grinds it into powder. He scatters it in the water. And then he makes the people drink it. So what is he doing? He is, he, he's destroying the idol. And this shows us that any idols in our lives have to be destroyed. You can't just store them or put them away. You got to destroy them. Get rid of them completely or they will creep back in. Aaron explains, quotation marks, tries to explain. He gives three weak responses to sin that we also, I'm sure we've all made these excuses. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such grave sin? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that these people are intent on evil. It's their fault. I couldn't do anything about them. They said to me, make us a God who will bring before, will go before us because this Moses is your fault. (laughs) If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And I love this. Not in a good way. It just, I mean, it's typical of human beings. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and then this this calf just came out. That's what he says. It just happened. I don't know how it happened. So first he pushes back his Mo- at Moses. Moses, you're overreacting. You know how stubborn these people are. Then he blames, uh, he said, Moses, don't get so mad. And he blames the people. That's the next thing. And then finally, he attempts to hide his own responsibility with a sin of omission. He doesn't mention conveniently that the, the, the calf didn't just come out. He, he made it. He fashioned it. He crafted it. But he leaves that little significant detail out. And then just pure dishonesty when i threw it in the fire it just came out that's just a lie just dishonesty and then we see in verse 25 moses saw that the people were out of control for aaron had let them get out of control resulting in weakness before their enemies and moses stood at the camp's entrance and said whoever is for the lord come to me and all the levites gathered around him he told them this is what the lord the god of israel says Every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from the entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. Now, that seems harsh, but think about it. They all deserved to be destroyed, every one of them. The fact that any of them were saved was God's mercy, and what God is doing here is separating those who truly want to follow him and those who don't. And I know it seems harsh, but when you think about the fact that, the, that think about the fact that anybody's saved, that's an act of mercy, and not all, we're not all destroyed. It kind of puts it into perspective. So that's what they do. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about three thousand men fell dead that day among the people. Didn't have to happen. Afterward, Moses said, "Today you have been dedicated to the Lord, since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing on yourselves." So Moses just says, who's on the Lord's side? We're going to find out. Those of you who are on the Lord's side, you come to me. Now, you've got to get rid of idolatry in this camp. If we're going to move forward, it's got to be, it's got to be destroyed. We've destroyed the idol. Now it has to be destroyed in the hearts of people. 3,000 people lose their lives that day, and none of it had to happen. But because they turned against God, that was 
punishment. Then Moses prays to make atonement for the people. He fulfills his responsibility. Verse 30, the following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for you. He recognizes rightfully that atonement has to be made. Right? An atonement. When you think about atonement, it, it means at one That's another way to think about it. Okay? It, is, it is the reunion. It is reconciling God to man. We're separated by sin, so we've got to be reconnected somehow. And by God's law, somebody has to die in order for that to happen. Blood has to be shed in order for atonement. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. It was imperfect. It wasn't good for all time, but it allowed them to be connected to God until Messiah came, until Christ came and made the perfect atonement, the perfect sacrifice. Moses recognizes the need for this, that blood has to be shed. Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Moses confesses the people's sins, and he says, God, let me die in their place. I mean, he's really, I mean, he's all in now, right? I mean, these people are his people. God, take me, punish me. Moses is their mediator. He offers himself. Verse 32, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. That's a pretty, pretty strong prayer. Erase me from your book. What book? Send me to hell, basically, is what he's saying, and save them. That's love right there. That's dedication. That's commitment. So his heart is right. But he's trying to do something that no human being is capable of doing. One sinful human being cannot make atonement for another sinful human being. It's just not possible. It can't happen. So while we admire him greatly for his commitment and his love, he can't do this. So God responds in verse 33. The Lord replied to Moses, I will erase whoever sinned against me from my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And so what does God do? He inflicts. 3,000 people are dead. Now he sends a plague on the people for what they did with the calf that Aaron made. He punishes sin. Folks, God is gracious. He is merciful. He is loving. But he is also just. We cannot forget that. We cannot replace a holy, just God with a wimpy God that does not confront sin. Because if you take that away, he's not God anymore. You can be saved and that's God's grace. You can go to heaven, and you can allow him to, he's already taken, he's already paid the price for your sins. You can accept that salvation, but even as a Christian, if you sin, there will be consequences. We all face it. I mean, not eternal consequences unless you're lost. God will punish sin, and they had to pay the price for their sin. Even those whose lives were saved, they had to be punished for their sin. Sin is deadly serious. We need to understand. And we all do it. I'm just as sinful as anybody here, okay? Just because I'm up on this stage does not mean I have it all together. I make mistakes. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife, and she will tell you, I'm sure. Ask my kids. I'll read their book when they write it one day, all the mistakes we made. We all make mistakes, but when we flaunt God, when we willfully disobey God, when we continue to sin over and over again while God is convicting us, we are putting ourselves in a dangerous position. Instead of coming to him, repenting, turning away in true sorrow and true remorse, atonement for sin has to be made, and it has been made. It has to be made to restore a relationship with God. Somebody's got to vouch for us. Somebody's got to pay the price. 
an amazing story from several years ago. A lady named Mary Johnson lost her only son, Ramian Bird. He was murdered in 1993. His life was taken in just a, a, an act of violence by a 16-year-old named O'Shea Israel. He was convicted of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And something interesting happened while O'Shea was in prison. Mary visited him in prison. He killed her son. Now, keep this in mind. And she decided that the way she was going to deal with this was not to, you know, hold, have bitterness towards this guy or refuse to forgive him. She decided she was going to build a relationship with him. He killed her son. And I'm just going to keep repeating that. He, she built a relationship with him, but that's not all. She visited him in prison. They formed a relationship. He got out of prison, all right, after about 20 years of that sentence. He needed somebody to vouch for him so that he could get a job, get a place to live. Mary not only vouched for him, but arranged for him to live next door to her. Now, I've got a picture. I want to show you this picture. If you look at this picture, you would think that was a mother and her son, wouldn't you? No, that's her son's killer. They maintain a relationship to this day. She decided to forgive him and not only forgive him, vouch for him so that he could reenter society and make something of himself. She works for a foundation that helps families uh, that have suffered from violence deal with that by helping to restore criminals. That's amazing. I got to be honest with you. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, seriously. To me, that, that woman... She represents Christ <laughs> better than probably anybody I've met in this way. Because think about it. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. That's what God did for you. I mean, he laid down his life, but it was because of our sin. It's our sin that forced him, that caused him to want to go to the cross. He died for us. Jesus died for us. We deserve to be punished. We deserve, we didn't even want him. Without him, we don't know we need him. We wouldn't come to him if he didn't initiate the relationship. But not only does he forgive us, now what does he do right now in this moment when we cry out to him in uncertainty and fear, what does he do? He vouches for us. He intercedes for us so that we can have a life. And ultimately, we have a place to live for all of eternity. But so many times we try to make our own way to heaven. We try to substitute God's best I, what we want for God's best. We try to earn our way. We try to, to, to worship things in our lives that don't matter. And I want to finish, and I want you to think about it this way, okay? We try to form our own path to heaven. I've got a stack of books. Great teaching commentary, by the way, Sunday school teachers, a Holman commentary. We, we have different ways. What are some ways that we try to earn our way into heaven? What? Good works. Good works. Just doing something good, right? So we're trying to build. You've heard the song, Stairway to Heaven? It's okay to admit it. It's okay. Um, we're going to build our stairway to heaven. So good works. What's another way? Where are you right now? Some people can say, hey, if I go to church, if I'm on the roll, I can go to heaven. What's another way? What? Read the Bible. Yeah, if I read the Bible, that's the key, right? If I just read my Bible, I can go to heaven. Another way? Give money. Yeah, I'm just going to give. If I, the more money I give, I'll buy my way into heaven, right? What's another one? Getting baptized, right? Confusing baptism with salvation because that's not really 
I mean, you're saved and you're baptized to show that you're saved. It's a, it's a picture of salvation. What's another way, maybe? Singing the right songs. Yeah, if I, just, if I sing the right songs, go to church and participate, right? If I participate in worship or whatever, all right? Getting a little shaky here, isn't it? All right, what's another way? Praying. If I just pray, you know, I don't have to be saved, but if I just talk to God, I can be saved. You know, any number of ways. Anybody have another one? Maybe caring for others. Be caring for others. It could be, hey, if I just give up something, right? If I stop doing this, I'll be good enough. And we built this stairway. Oh, yeah. Not yet. Now, how many of you would want to climb this stairway? <laughs> As, I mean, the least, li- least little thing, and it crumbles, right? That's what happens when we try to build our own way to heaven, and that's what happens when we try to build our own idols. And what's worse is we forget all that God has done for us. The Israelites had forgotten about him delivering them, his signs, his wonders, his miracles. I mean, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock. They're forgetting all of that, and they're substituting something that he created for the creator himself. And we do the same thing. We forget about the fact that God saved us. He not only saved us, he made us a part of his family. He gave us a right to his inheritance. He takes care of us from day to day. He blesses us with his presence. He gives us things that we don't deserve. He doesn't just give us salvation. He gives us so much more than that. He blesses us with hope and assurance and a foundation that will not crumble in the midst of chaos. He gives us all of that. And anytime we put something in his place or we try to earn his favor instead of receiving his grace, our service should be because we love him not to earn his love. And anytime we do that, we are forgetting about all that God has done for us. I know this is a difficult time. I know that it is uncertain. And I am just as nervous about certain things as you are. And there are times where I do succumb to fear, but I always, I keep coming back to the cross. Don't forget about all that God has done for us and don't forget about all that he promises to do. One truth that's been on my heart all week, the president of the United States, who that is and who it isn't, or whatever's happening in our culture does not change our mission as a church. And it does not change our mission as it relates to the kingdom of God. God is going to fulfill his kingdom purposes, and he will use whatever government leader he allows in power to fulfill that purpose. He's used evil kings like Nebuchadnezzar in the past. I mean, the Bible's full of it. God's plans, we don't determine that. They're not subject to man. God will fulfill his promises. We can rest in that. You know, I slept just fine last night. I didn't even want to wake up this morning. I was hard getting up this morning. Sometimes I have trouble sleeping. Last night, I slept fine. Didn't matter who the president was, because I went to bed praying and trusting. I'm not perfect in this always, but I prayed and I trusted. God, you are still on your throne, and you are still going to fulfill your purpose for my life, for my family's life, and for your kingdom. Nothing will change that. And I want to be a part of that. Don't you? I want to be a part of that. Because it's going to be an awesome experience. Because one day he's going to come part those clouds. And he's going to take us home. And we don't have to worry about any of this mess anymore. In the meantime, we need to live waiting for that event. Are you ready for that event? Or are you trying to earn your way into heaven? Are you worshiping some other God in your life? It could be something good. It could be putting your family in a place 
that belongs to God. It could be putting your job, your career, anything in a place that belongs to God. But only he belongs there. And the only way to get reconciled to him is to accept the salvation that he offers through his son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to go before the Lord in prayer. And you've got an opportunity to do that. You just bow your head and close your eyes. Let me ask that question once again. What are you worshiping? Is your heart a place of self-worship or the worship of God's gifts even? Or is your heart completely and totally sold out to him? Are you leaning completely on the grace of God through Jesus Christ? If not, make a decision today to break with the golden calf in your life, to destroy it completely, and to commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. You can accept him by inviting him into your life. And if you know him and you know there are idols in your life, you can destroy them right now. And commit yourself completely to God, the one and only true God. Father, we thank you. You're such a patient God. And we, your people, we've succumbed to fear at times. We've placed things in our lives in the position that belongs to you. We continue to doubt you. We worry about the future. What's going to happen? The sky's falling. (laughs) And all the while, you're where you've always been. You're on your throne and miraculously at the same time in our hearts and in our lives. You've never left. You've been here all along. And you're asking us to trust you. And you've proven trustworthy time and time and time and time again. And we look at the Israelites and we say, how could they do that? But we've done it. We've doubted you. But God, today I pray that we would declare in our hearts, in this place, in our lives, that we will worship you and you alone. We will trust you no matter what happens. We will not allow the tides of culture the events of our day, who's in leadership and who's not, to change or to water down or to affect our faith, our trust, and our dependence on you. I pray that we would be firm in our dedication and in our commitment. May we not be swayed, conformed to the image of this culture, but be transformed daily by your power and your presence in our lives and by your word. I pray that these things would drive us closer to you and not push us away. But that's up to us. It begins with salvation. It begins with trusting you. And if there's anybody here today or watching at home who has never put their faith and trust in you, I pray that they would do that right now. And if if, for those of us who have, Lord, I pray that we would recommit ourselves to you, that we would commit to trusting you And then in those moments where we fall on our face, that we would truly repent, turn away from that sin, never to return. Not wallow in it. Not keep coming back to it. But by your power and your strength, run away and never return. Lord, I thank you for that strength. I thank you for your blessings. And I thank you for all that you've given us and all that you've promised us. We claim your promises and we depend on you. And we commit to doing things your way, not ours. You define our desires and our expectations. Let's take ours and throw them out the window. Father, you define our desires, our expectations. 
In Jesus' name, amen.